It is ironic that while white middle-class women continue to suffer from fertility problems in the United States, as uh, Leith Mullings so astutely pointed out this morning, there is a global panic of the falling birth rate of white babies um, while, poor women, while poor women of color in the third world and the United States continue to be blamed for their poverty. Sterilization, one of the oldest reproductive technologies in the world, has been used as a form of population control in the third world. Therefore, when we raise the question of how we can make reproductive technologies available to marginalized women, we need to take into account the way this technology is used and by whom. As we all know, technology does not exist in a vacuum. It exists within a context of unequal power relations that reflect race, racism, class, ethnicity, colonialism, and varying levels of self-awareness. With the globalization of sterilization in the 20th century, sterilization has become prevalent in the United States as well as in the third world. Although it has become a popular method, in quotes, of birth control in the United States, this does not erase its tainted eugenic history, nor the significant number of racialized and poor white women who were subject to sterilization abuse in the 70s. My recent book, Matters of Choice, Puerto Rican Women's Struggle for Reproductive Freedom, presents a comprehensive analysis of the dichotomous views that have portrayed sterilization either as part of a coercive program of population control or as a means of voluntary, even liberating, fertility control by individual women. Drawing upon 25 years of research on sterilized women, I explored the interplay between how women make fertility decisions and their social, economic, cultural, and historical constraints. Weaving women's voices together, I make a case for an integral model of reproductive freedom that takes us beyond victim-agent debates to a broader definition of reproductive rights within a feminist anthropological context. The paper in this panel raises questions about the politics of the globalization of reproductive technologies and demonstrates the link between production and reproduction as well as the globalization of transnational and transracial adoptions. The first two papers will be presented by Donna Ayn Davis and Kalindi Vora. Dr. Davis is a PhD in anthropology and teaches at Queens College in urban studies. She's also the associate chair of worker education. She is president of the New York Foundation and also directs ADCO Foundation. She has just completed two terms as the president of the Association of Black Anthropologists and was former co-chair of New York uh, Neural. For the past four years, she's been working with the National Network of Abortion Funds. Her paper discusses the riveting case of Nadia Suleiman within the broader context of the neoliberal choice of reproductive consumption, reproductive stratification, and reproductive justice. Dr. Davis's uh, paper explores how race, class, and gender ideologies of poor racialized women have shaped the way the media and public has reacted to Suleiman's octuplets and raises the question of the lack of access to abortion. Our second speaker will be Kalindi Vora. 
She holds a PhD in History of Consciousness, Feminist Studies from UC Santa Cruz, and uh, an MA in Cultural Anthropology from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Currently, she is at the University of California, Berkeley. Her work draws from critical race and gender frameworks in the study of transnational movements of people and labor between India and other nations, particularly in the U.S. Her paper discusses how surrogacy has become a thriving business in India and how poor women desperate for work rent their wounds to other women and couples who want to have children for a price in order to survive. The third speaker is Dr. Laura Briggs. Dr. Briggs is an associate professor and head of women's studies and holds affiliate appointments in history, anthropology, and Latin American studies at the University of Arizona. Her areas of specialization are sexuality and reproduction, race and colonialism, and transnational U.S. history. She is the author of Reproducing Empire, Race, Sex, Science, and U.S. Imperialism in Puerto Rico, and co-editor of International Adoption, Global Inequalities and the Circulation of Children. She is currently working on a monograph entitled Adoption, Race, and Violence, The Politics of Transnational and Transracial Adoption. Dr. Briggs outlines the globalizing processes and contradictions that contributed to middle-class women's infertility in the United States and the transnational adoption of babies and nannies from Guatemala at the social cost to poor women there. The fourth speaker is Dr. Claudia Castaneda. Castaneda. Um, Dr. Castaneda's research intersects with feminist science and technology and transnational studies. She has written on figurations of the child in transnational circuits of exchange and the relationship between bodies, technologies, knowledge, and power. She, is currently, uh, she currently teaches in the Boston area and works as a developmental editor with academic writers. Her paper explores the transracial debate and the biological and cultural facets of the construct of race with respect to adoption. As we shall see from her paper, one of the unintended consequences of globalization is that it can reconstitute the meaning of race and culture in ways that suggest affiliation beyond the nuclear family. So uh, on this note, I'm going to pause here, uh, and uh, Dr. Um, Davis will be our first speaker, and then I'll come back and say a few closing remarks. I'm very appreciative to the uh, Barnard Center for Research on Women for inviting me to speak today. Um, and thank you very much, Iris Lopez. I've gotten to meet you after all these years, and I admire your work, and I'm so glad your book is out. Um, <clears throat> let me begin with the story of Naja Sulman, who, as you know, gave birth to octuplets on January 26th in Bellflower, California. Suleiman uh, gave birth to the nation's second set of octuplets at Kaiser Permanente Hospital. And the global media announced the octuplets' arrival with disclosure from the mother's medical support team that following the birth, following the delivery, the mother and the children were doing very well, despite the fact that the infants had been two and a half months premature. Initially, the story possessed all the elements of immediate genesis success, 
whetting the public's appetite for distraction from the economic downturn. And all most people wanted to know was, who were the parents? Riveted by the story over the course of 29 days, from January 26th to February 24th, I followed blogs, newspaper articles, and television news coverage, with friends sending almost daily updates of anything that they thought I had not seen. In unpacking the story, I found that the blogging public viewed the event as a joyous miracle. Simultaneously, medical and bioethical professionals tempered the public's rejoice on news programs, conjecturing how Suleiman became pregnant, as embryologists thought that it was very unlikely that this was a natural conception. Of course, the range of assisted reproductive technology options included in vitro fertilization, intrauterine insemination with partner or donor sperm, and there was one speculation that she had received infertility drugs in the procedure known as controlled ovarian hyperstimulation. As answers to the questions were slowly unveiled, accompanied by an almost deafening din of chastisement, I wondered why so few reproductive rights groups weighed in. And while my panel colleagues will examine global articulations and meanings of transnational adoption, reproductive labor, and reproductive technology, I want to draw on the coverage of Ms. Suleiman and her use of assisted reproductive technology to situate several concerns about the politics of reproduction. And this is a sort of elaboration of Dr. Spar. Dr. Spar's mention about how we look at health issues and we look at moral issues, and I want to offer a sort of cultural analysis of what happened. My first concern reiterates scholarly and activist critiques of the ways in which reproductive stratification, defined earlier by Dr. Mullings, is asserted through assisted reproductive technology. The second thing that I want to explore is what I see as the perversity of neoliberal reification of consumption when it sits at the realm of reproductive choice. And then in light of those two issues, I want to use Suleiman's story to trouble one of the questions proposed in the conference description, which you've actually already heard, which is how do we ensure that marginalized individuals, for example, people with disabilities, women of color, and low-income women, have equal access to these new technologies and adoption practices? I want to be clear from the start that I'm referring to Suleiman's story to neither justify nor condemn her. I don't want to speculate on the logic of her maternal impulses. I simply want to raise questions about the implications of accessing assisted reproductive technology and the relationship that that interest might have for reproductive justice, which seeks to ensure a broad range of health services, information, and resources. So on the day that the octuplets were born, the Los Angeles Times reported in an update that the event was unbelievably rare. If it was assisted, one medical professional claimed, then this was not a medical triumph, but a serious complication. While the first blog responses on January 26th were quite positive, by 10.54 a.m. on January 27th, just one day after the birth, suspicions surfaced regarding the mother's intentions. By the 28th, bloggers inquired if the woman had plotted to have so many children for monetary gain, a la Angelina Jolie or Jennifer Lopez. 
Because the conception process was still unconfirmed through January 28th, newspaper reports increasingly focused on medical professionals' assessment of the risks associated with high-order multiple births, many of which emphasized how unethical it would be for an IVF specialist to implant a large, such a large number of embryos if, in fact, that was what happened, because we still weren't sure. And one clinical embryologist in Atlanta um, noted that this kind of event gives the fertility world the heebie-jeebies. Then on, then on the 29th, the mother was outed. She already had six children who were at home being cared for by her mother while she was in the hospital. Upon this revelation, one blogger wrote, who know who the dads, in plural, are of the other six. Another wrote, now she brings a litter, which was actually misspelled as a leader, of eight kids into an already overpopulated world. Those babies will cost taxpayers millions, and I think this is criminal. But still, there was too little information about who the parents were, and that allowed Ms. Suleiman to escape the full denunciation that she later achieved, if you will. On February 9th, Angela Suleiman, her mother, confirmed that her daughter had undergone IVF, and slowly doctors' questions about the conception process turned into an attack on Suleiman's judgment to give birth to eight more children. They wondered had she been appropriately counseled regarding, sele uh, regarding um, selective reduction of some of the fetuses since she'd already had six children. Which doctor might have assisted her and why? The medical profession's discussion continued to focus on the ethics of implantation centered on the fertility industry, but only up until a certain point because it was assumed at first that Suleiman was married based on the social script that those who use assisted reproductive technologies are in heterosexual relationships. When it was discovered that she was a single mother, although previously married, criticism against her crystallized, underscoring her irresponsibility. And subsequently, the causes of harm then shifted to her somewhat and away from, a little bit away from the, uh, the industry. Quickly, the miracle turned to disgust, which seemed to be fueled in part, and this is my reading of it, an inability to profile the woman who gave birth. On February 5th, for example, in a Good Morning America interview, Suleiman's newly hired publicist, Joanne Keelan, was asked by Diane Sawyer, who is this woman? We know nothing about her. Since no pictures of Suleiman had been released, um, newscasters had no idea what she looked like. They knew very little about her class status. None of this stuff was confirmed, her educational achievements or her race or ethnicity. And seemingly, her unknown identity frustrated attempts to establish the legitimacy of her maternal aspirations and her use of assisted reproductive technology. For bloggers, the missing information about Suleiman's class and race, coupled with the fact that she was single and already had six children, resulted in indexing, her first, indexing first her citizenship status and then her race. Her fecundity was equated first with an illegal alien status, and then later, she was African-American. I mean, after all, who, gives, who else gives birth to that many children? From there, it didn't take long for an ideological default to be asserted that she was on welfare. And in truth, Ms. Suleiman does receive $460 a month in food stamps, which can be separated out from the entire welfare system, which Oprah Winfrey actually mistakenly said, well, that's welfare too. And disability payments for two of her six children. Interestingly, Ms. Suleiman's race and ethnicity, nor her citizenship status, was remarked upon in the news programs after it was discovered that her father is, in fact, an Iraqi-American. 
Because once it became clear that she had been a stay-at-home mom with an unknown source of income, Suleiman had engendered a degree of cumulative toxicity that reproduced a decades-old charge that marginalized women with children are bad mothers. And this logic led to the view that she should be punished. And thus it was no surprise when some bloggers demanded that she be arrested or that she have her children removed. Essentially, Suleiman, vis-a-vis her childbearing, was vilified in much the same way that low-income women and women of color have been in the past and contemporarily. And And as is so often the case, assessments of women's childbearing is, in fact, as you know, related to race and class. And Lynn Paltrow, who's the executive director of National Advocates for Pregnant Women, responded to a Salon.com inquiry um, about what she thought of this issue. And she said that, you know, when a a woman is not brown or black and the drugs or the technologies that are provided by big pharmaceuticals, um, the discussion focuses on questions of ethics. When it's related to low-income women and women of color, the focus is on punishment through the criminal justice or child welfare system. Now, this perspective, of course, aligns with arguments that connect reproductive control, stigmatization, and criminalization of what I want to just call particular others, those who are valued differentially based on race, ethnicity, citizenship, class, nationality, sexuality, and gender. Essentially, public calls to punish Suleiman reinforced several um, points made by some in critical scholarly and activist circles about reproduction generally that there are aims of social convention related to reproduction. With regard to technologies associated with infertility, the aim, according to a recent um, article published by Celine Quiroga, the aim is to create families that reproduce the heteropatriarchal norm. And in terms of kinship, Ms. Suleiman, as a single woman, is not viewed as having a legitimate family. Um, And there was broad acceptance that her transgression reflected the ways in which family formation and kinship are believed to be immutable. In the court of public opinion, Suleiman violated the often stratified privileges associated with assisted reproductive technology, which in turn ushered calls for measures to circumscribe choice related to these new technologies. And in the process, actualizing choice became modified. So now I want to talk about neoliberal consumption. Catherine Pauli Morgan notes that the autobiography of reproduction was supplanted by technological treatments. Um, Choice in the domain of the natural became technologically mediated, and the knowledge, power, and control of assisted reproductive technology was expertized and commodified. In lockstep with neoliberal mandates, Reproductive choices and assisted reproductive technology exists in relationship to neoliberal expectations that individuals engage in the exchange of goods and services independently with no barriers. Yet there are constraints embedded in costly treatments and reliance on experts at the same time that reproductive rights and choices operate in a reproductive marketplace that's characterized by consumption, marketing, and commercialization that is geared primarily to white women. So to illustrate this point, um, we only need to look at a recent Newsweek.com article titled, Have Another Fertilini. Fertilini. So what is that? So this is, it's called Fertilini, the the at, like fertility and a martini. (laughs) 
Um, it's a company, this, ad, this article is accompanied by a photo of a young white woman wearing a belt with a clock for a buckle. And the article reports on the Fertility Association's launch of a ser series called Manicures and Martinis at the very upscale Dashing Divas nail salons, which are located all throughout Manhattan and Brooklyn. And it's hoped that the program will go national. They do have a few nail salons in um, Pasadena, California, and North Carolina. Uh, and they are being billed as a series of one-hour conversations about, the reproductive, about reproductive health targeted to women in their 20s and their 30s. Participants will learn from leading fertility experts about the reality of the biological clock and other risk factors for infertility. Yet the availability of fertility choices are severely stratified because enhanced reproductive options exist primarily for those of means, where the definition of means coalesces around affluence. And that's evidenced by the cost of some of these technologies, which range, the ranges that I got was from $10,000 to $15,000. And this very fact prompts a falsity about participating in this marketplace of reproductive services. So here again, this is where Ms. Suleiman's story is very instructive. So she took advantage of a reproductive option using a portion of a $165,000 settlement that she got after being injured at her job. And that's how she paid to have these six embryos implanted, two of which split. And ironically, she complied with the U.S. constructed ideology of maternalism and consumption. But some still view Ms. Solomon's access to the reproductive marketplace to actualize this maternal impulse, for whatever her reasons, as an abomination of science. So Suleiman now face, is now the face of a crisis in reproductive technology that many say require more regulation, both the technology itself and, I think, thereby implication, the women. In fact, in relation to Suleiman, one medical professional made the argument that the right to choose is really only the decision to have an abortion. It doesn't extend to any possible choice in reproductive ethics. It is a misunderstanding of a, rights, of a reproductive rights claim that she did. The right to choose is the right to choose to terminate. It does not confer a right to choose anything else. So the point, what she was arguing is, is that choice is restricted to decisions about termination and not about conception. And this points into the direction of really consecrating assisted reproductive technology for the culturally legible, as Robin Weigman is known to say. Much of the public ire of Suleiman's choice and her access to assisted reproductive technology was fueled by raising questions about her mental health status and attacking her ability to parent, in which her mother and to some degree her father both participated. By demonizing the woman, it was easy to see the failure of the presumption of rationalization that's emboldened in neoliberalist ideology that shapes the independent individual. She represents an extreme, but in this case necessary, backlash against valorizing individualism and the coherency of choice. A February 10th um, CNN interview with Anderson Cooper and Dr. Arthur Kaplan who is at the Center of Bioethics at the University of Pennsylvania, serves as instructive about what happens when people make bad choices and when those bad choices intrude upon a market-based logic. When Anderson Cooper asked, if, asked this gentleman, Dr. Cooper, if fertility doctors should be more engaged in determining who should have IVF, all right, um, 
of who should have IVF, Kaplan replied that such, such questions as, do you have money and do you have a home, should be asked, and that those answers should factor into doctors' decisions to implant. Kaplan's position reifies professional prerogative in managing arts consumption with the elision of a formula to create a, an appropriate family. And his position seemed to perversely open up his position makes it seem perverse to open up the market of reproductive services, not only from the perspective of who might attempt to use it, but also because evaluations about who can and should be able to avail themselves might be more, become more stratified. Okay, so I'll just skip since I only have three minutes. Where were the, reproductive, where were the mainstream reproductive rights and reproductive justice groups during this debate? Um... They were largely silent on the Suleiman case. And I'm not deploring them for not defending her per se, but the silence rendered despite the conclusions, but for the silence rendered despite the conclusions drawn from the event. Conclusions in which marginalization, symbolic criminalization, a push toward punishment, maternal castigation, and reproductive restrictions circulated in the public sphere. And these conclusions speak to some of the ideological and political incongruencies surrounding the politics of reproduction. And as Andrea Smith has pointed out, that much of those politics encompasses the language of choice and access, which narrows the focus of political goals related to reproduction because access, just like choices, can be very conditional, and access can be blocked. The Suleiman case exemplifies, albeit in very extreme terms, what a politics of reproduction can descend into when a reproductive justice framework is not front and center in framing the issues. Issues that center around the complete physical, mental, spiritual, political, social, environmental, and economic well-being of women and girls based on this full achievement of human rights. In the absence of principles and politics guided by reproductive justice, few groups opposed Suleiman's public lynching, few challenged the discourse, which was the very same discourse that has been used to dominate the reproductive rights of marginalized women. And I think this left an awkward opening to undermine political projects seeking to secure full articulation of rights to information and birth control and economic resources. Um, to raise children, to select birthing options, and to live in good housing. With too, <laughs> with too few critiques, for example, of the call for state regulatory agencies to investigate and remove her children, we put other marginalized women, low-income women, women of color, disabled women, at risk for experiencing the same kinds of demands. And by not challenging the focus on the failure of one woman to make good choices, we reinvigorated the possibility of panics that result in marking other woman, women as having made bad choices as well. By not challenging the representation, symbolic and otherwise, we let an opportunity get away to disentangle the complex ways in which rights were elided with pathology. And what was so stunning was how the, de the demonization strategy was operationalized to ensure an ideological compliance with control over one more point on the axis of reproductive decisions, not necessarily as a fait accompli, but certainly as a possibility. And I'll just stop there, even though I do have more. All right, those were two super smart papers. I want to stand up here and talk about them. But instead, I'm going to talk about Guatemala. Um, this paper is interested in a story about the transnationalization of reproductive labor. 
neoliberal globalization and its paradoxical effects on the private space of the family. I want to explore it by way of a just-so story about three familiar sorts of people. The first is a Guatemalan infant who has been adopted to the United States. Second is a Guatemalan woman, let's say the child's mother, who's been left, who has left behind other children and family members and migrated to the United States, where she works undocumented as a nanny. Consider how these two people are valued and how borders produce that value. The cost of the infant's adoption for her U.S. parents was about $30,000. The child's mother, on the other hand, is not much valued if we think about what kinds of wages she can probably earn or what her life was worth crossing Mexico and then the Arizona desert, where she was twice as likely as a similarly situated man to be left behind and die. While we dwell on how unfair that is, maybe thinking about it in relationship to the hypervaluation of fetuses and the U.S. abortion debate, we could recross the border and notice that their relative value is opposite in Guatemala. The child is most likely to be Mayan, one of more than a dozen distinct indigenous groups, and one could say that her very existence is the result of the failure of the genocidal campaigns of the state in the 1980s and 90s. If, for some reason, this child's family couldn't raise her, she would be lucky to go to school or even to find an NGO or church-based orphanage rather than live on the streets in communities of children as young as two or three. She might well be working for wages or panhandling by the age of six or seven. Adoption to the U.S. is serving as a privatized welfare system for the ferociously neoliberal Guatemalan state, which is bitterly fitting given the U.S. role in defeating other visions of the state in Guatemala. Her mother, we might say, has a higher value as measured by her wages or the likelihood of dying of treatable disease or malnutrition. In puzzling out how the fact of borders reverses the value of these human lives, we should set them in relationship to a different problem of domestic labor and value, that of a middle-class or wealthy woman in the U.S., probably but not always white, who might adopt the first and employ the second. Like the women whose story Arlie Hothschild told in her 1989 book, The Second Shift, this woman, well-educated and potentially well-paid, probably entered the labor force for good in the 20s, in her 20s, unlike many women in previous generations, to offset the historic decline in real wages that affected households beginning in the 1970s. And this created a crisis at home, Women were still doing most of the housework and fighting with their husbands about it, as Hothschild told it. At the time, it seemed like men would eventually have to do more childcare and housework. Women's wages were becoming a critical part of domestic economies. It turned out, though, that there was another way of negotiating this problem for middle-class families, delaying childbearing until a later time when a mother might be further along in her career and her wages higher, than hiring a nanny from outside the United States for relatively low wages. Delayed childbirth, as we've been hearing, is a risky reproductive strategy. As each partner's fertility declines as they age, conspicuously a woman's beyond the age of 35, at more or less exactly the same moment that she might be established professionally. Rising ages at reproduction for women have led to increased rates of impaired fertility, as the demographers say. And this has been met in part through transnational adoption as well as ART. 
This narrative is also relevant for queer families. While they may not have a specifically gendered labor crisis at home, they're nevertheless caught up in the same problem of managing domestic and wage labor in the context of, of child-rearing and structural infertility. This paper explores the genealogy of how these bodies, families, and their labor came to be differently valued, looking at some of the many factors that might account for it. Primarily, I want to tell a political economy story. I start by examining how transnational adoption from Latin America emerged in the 1970s and 80s in conjunction with those nations' civil wars and dirty wars. Second, I explore how moral panics around race and parenting rendered some children less desirable than others. Finally, related and sometimes the same hysterics around parenting turned middle-class parents into guardians of their children and rendered security a key word of the family as much as of the national security state. Taken together, I suggest these three developments begin to account for the peculiar and contradictory story of the relative value of these figures. In the last two decades, <clears throat> growing numbers of middle-class households in the U.S. have included domestic workers, most, mostly of Latin American origin or ancestry. And this has shifted Hothschild's crisis of reproductive labor economically downward to bring the who's watching the kids question to a greater number of working class households in the U.S. or across national boundaries as mothers leave young children in their home countries to support them by doing domestic work outside. This is a cost of reproductive labor question. If an increasing number of middle class households in the U.S. are relying on on labor from elsewhere because they can pay women from Latin America lower wages in their homes than U.S. women are earning outside the home. It's also true that migrant women who leave children in home countries are relying on the lower cost of reproduction outside the U.S. It's a form of offshore reproduction that has been at once crucial to other forms of globalization, including the superheating of the U.S. economy before the crash of 2008 and to a significant extent ignored in, uh, in discussions of neoliberal globalization. While there never was a golden age in the U.S. when domestic labor was understood to be our common social concern to be supported by the state and wider community, there were still moments that seemed to offer the promise of something different and less privatized. In the 1960s and 70s, feminism and the welfare rights movement advocated wages for motherhood and wages for housework and daycare centers. Jimmy Carter's administration even acknowledged some obligation to help families with young children since, for the first time, a majority of mothers of children under six were working for wages. Reagan changed all that. Beginning with the 1980 campaign focus on welfare cheats, it was high on the agenda of Reagan's people to shut this space down. How they did this was a textbook case for neoliberalism. They began by demonizing working-class black, Latino, and Native women and children as unworthy of help, irresponsible, and immoral. Then they moved on to white and middle-class families, said to be potentially just like those awful working-class families of color. And they would be just like them if the government gave them support. In place of this, neoliberals offered personal responsibility and security. I'm thinking here of how crack babies, fetal alcohol syndrome, and child car seats and bike helmets became major public policy issues. 
I've written about the invention of the crack baby in the 1980s and how it was part and parcel of the civic disenfranchisement and sanctioned impoverishment of black and Latino people in the U.S. in the 1980s. Today, though, I want to talk about fetal alcohol syndrome, FAS, because it did double work. First, it demonized Native mothers, and then it turned on usually white middle-class mothers. Taken together, crack babies and FAS provided a cover story for neoliberal decimation of the social contract between the state and its most vulnerable citizens by making the case for the belief that personal private irresponsibility was illegitimately making dangerous claims on the public fisc. In 1989, Michael Doris published The Broken Cord, an influential account of fetal alcohol syndrome. While FAS had been identified in the research literature as early as 1973 and had received passing mention in the media and in court cases, Doris's book put it on the map as a public health emergency. The first half of The Broken Cord is a tremendously compelling novelistic account of the adoption of his son, a toddler with developmental delays, and the crashing to earth of Doris's hopes that environment was everything, as his son continued to exhibit growing health problems and learning disabilities. By the end of the book, Doris is insisting that as many as one in three Native children have been irredeemably harmed by maternal drinking during pregnancy, a number that's completely, completely outrageous. What followed was hysteria about pregnant women drinking, culminating in warning labels on alcoholic beverages and in bars. Media stories decried child abuse and even genocide by Native women who drank. Women, mostly Native, went to jail to protect their fetuses, despite appalling pregnancy outcomes for women in prison. Some lost children to foster care, and Native children with developmental disabilities were automatically assumed to have FAS, although a 1994 genetic study on reservations in Arizona found that more than half the children diagnosed with FAS didn't have it, suffering instead from Downs or some other developmental disability. The entire debate also terrified middle-class women who didn't drink very much. Fetal alcohol syndrome went from being a problem of the children of alcoholic women to a warning to all pregnant women not to drink at all. Uncertainty about how much alcohol caused fetal defects emboldened public health officials and the media to claim that any alcohol use at all during pregnancy constituted fetal child abuse. Doris's partner, Louise Erdrich, summed it up when she said that the, quote, one glass of wine a day permissiveness of first-time yuppie mothers is still sufficient to cause brain damage in the fetus. No one has the slightest idea if that's true. Yuppie mothers in the 80s were never demonized the way black or native mothers were. Still, for them, the 80s was a period of intensifying anxiety about vulnerable children. Child advice books turned mean. In contrast to the reassuring Dr. Spock, who told mothers that if they listened to their children and their own common sense, everything would be fine, mothers in the 80s got Richard Ferber and T. Barry Brazelton. The new advice books warned of the dangers of bad parenting, urged discipline approaches to bedtime and potty training, the need to attend to developmental guideposts. The 1980s also marked the emergence of a host of new anxieties about child death and disability, ironically exactly at, at the time when the rates of both were declining sharply. There were countless news stories about threats to children, including sudden infant death syndrome, drunken driving, stranger kidnapping, stranger sexual abuse, and unverifiable reports of poisoned Halloween candy. 
States passed new laws requiring bicycle helmets for children, seat belts, and expensive child safety seats. At exactly the moment when middle-class U.S. American mothers most needed them, sturdy, self-reliant children disappeared. (laughs) At a time when there might have been widespread demand for publicly funded daycare, daycare became seen as a dangerous place where children were routinely sexually abused. The 1980s expansion of the private was at once an attack on feminism and the incursion of neoliberalism, replacing belief in public public services with private familial labor. So in some ways, it's not surprising that that at at the same time, there was an explosion of interest from the U.S. in transnational adoption. Middle-class domestic space had grown increasingly important, but more women were starting families late and struggling with fertility. Moral panics about crack babies and FAS had left many who in an earlier generation might have adopted children from U.S. foster care leery about potential disabilities. A vision of unregulated markets was gaining real traction, and at least ideologically, the state was in decline. Manufacturing plants began to move easily and repeatedly to wherever poverty was the greatest, assuring the lowest wages. Third world workers began to be seen as interchangeable, and babies entered this world as similarly mobile. Adoption, like jobs, followed gradients of poverty and civil disruption. Wars in Korea and Vietnam had produced the first big waves of transnational adoption. Then, adoption followed in the wake of advancing neoliberalism and civil war. In the 1970s and the 80s, the most significant sending countries besides South Korea were Colombia, Peru, Guatemala, Chile, and Paraguay. This is a striking list. Each was being run by a right-wing government with close ties to the United States. Each was engaged in a dirty war against leftist insurgents that included massive human rights violations against civilian populations and used disappearances, clandestine arrests, kidnapping, and murder as a tactic of terror. Activism by human rights groups like the Asociación Pro Búsqueda de Niñas y Niños Desaparecidos en El Salvador and Todos por el Reencuentro in Guatemala has made it increasingly clear that child kidnapping was also a tactic of political terror, followed by adoption within the country or to the U.S. and Europe. Court cases from Argentina to El Salvador have used the disappearance and adoption of children as the major sometimes the only dirty war crime that can be prosecuted. As a result, organizations of parents of disappeared children and the children themselves have emerged as some of the most important groups in Latin America's pro-democracy movements that have demanded legal accountability for war crimes. In one place, though, Guatemala, rates of transnational adoption doubled in the year after the peace accords were signed and increased almost a hundredfold within a decade. Guatemala has been called the country where neoliberalism has advanced the farthest, at least in part because it's where anti-communism was the most successful. For 30 years, the state tried to kill every trade unionist, member of an agrarian cooperative, every intellectual or member of a progressive political party, and then turned to the work of genocide of indigenous peoples, whom they suspected of someday perhaps having progressive sympathies. When the killing was done, the leaders were pardoned and stayed in power. 
Those who kidnapped children and disappeared them into adoptions during the war continued to oppose the implementation of international human rights frameworks for adoption. Despite repeated reforms, each a tacit admission that perhaps all was not well before, many still regard the Guatemalan adoption system and the words of one human rights lawyer there as a nest of corruption. To return then to the story with which I began, the material historical conditions under which middle-class U.S. households might decide to hire Latin American women to do household labor or adopt Guatemalan babies, or Guatemalan women decide to migrate or relinquish their children for adoption, have changed dramatically since 1970. Privatization has meant the expansion of the private for some and its virtual evisceration for others. We've told the story of neoliberalism as a story about states and economies, but it is at least as important to tell it as a story about families and how the distribution of reproductive labor has changed. Thank you. I just want to thank Janet Jacobson again in public for inviting me to this conference. I've been out of the loop for a bit, and it's really nice to be invited back. Um, to Iris Lopez for saying my name correctly and um, for your work as well. And to the panelists who've done such a fantastic job of creating kind of a map of um, some of the really important issues that I kind of um, assume in a way in this paper. Um, Okay, so, uh, oh, the other thing is I'm shamelessly promoting myself to all of you academics out there because I'm working only part-time as a lecturer and part-time as a developmental editor, and I'm really good at it. So if you have a paper sitting around or a project you're trying to think of doing that you haven't been able to get to, I can help you. And I will have some little pieces of paper with my contact information next to me. Okay, that having been said. Uh, Okay, so I'm talking about transracial adoption, as I was asked to do which I'm happy to do. Um, uh, Okay, so in the discourse of reproductive technologies, both within and outside the academy, though I have to say not at this conference, adoption is the poor relation. This is partly due to the privileging of nature or the natural over the social or cultural of blood, genes, and flesh, or rather certain blood, genes, and flesh, as Colleen Devora and others have reminded us, um, over what, in contrast, becomes the merely social or cultural bond. In the curious world of ART, this very same privileging ushers in a valuing of the high-tech over the low-tech. ART over the turkey baster, um, where am I? Uh, or, uh, and uh, reproductive technologies over adoption or, God forbid, childlessness. Thank you to Leith Mullings for pointing that out. Um, taking these unequal investments together with Zoe Sofoulis' suggestion that every technology is a reproductive technology, I want to ask the question of transracial adoption as a question of reproductive technology. That is, what is reproduced specifically with regard to race if we consider adoption as a technology and how is this accomplished? Um, and I'd say that I'm really um, in league with Kalindi in really trying to think about how are these um, ties or links made and how are they broken? How is the body figured? How do we understand these um, associations to be made? To ask the question in in this way, then, is not just a rhetorical flourish, at least I hope not. I'm using the concept of technology to emphasize its reproductive power. Uh, uh, To think adoption as a technology of race is therefore to understand it as entailing a process of racialization that takes place through specific, often material, and materializing processes. 
and practices. I want to note that when I speak of race here, also, I'm not making any claim to biological truth. It has none, scientifically speaking, none, zero, um, but to the ways in which the term is given semiotic and material existence in adoption discourse. While there are many important issues to consider that come, in a sense, before the question of how race is figured in transnational adoption, many of which the prior papers, as I said, have really eloquently addressed. And I include here the hierarchy of value in children, and I, I actually think that the question of health may be trumping anything to do with race at the moment, having a healthy child and having a healthy infant. So health and age, I think, are possibly more important than race, but we could think about that more. But in any case, I'm thinking about race and transnational adoption, including both domestic and transnational adoption, kind of. Um, so the question is not in any way trivial. So let me begin with two brief stories. Story number one. In an intro to women's studies course, the students and I were discussing issues of race. I told the students that I made no assumptions about how they identified themselves racially or culturally, and that I certainly did not assume that I could know this by looking at them. In the course of the ensuing discussion, a student said something like, I'm white. I was adopted from Korea, but I'm white. I'm white. The second story goes like this. At a meeting for a queer Latino organization, I introduced myself to one of the co-chairs. In the course of our discussion, she told me that her parents were white and U.S. born and that they had adopted her and her brother as babies from Colombia. I think it was Colombia. It was a Central America, Latin American country. She went on to say that her parents frequently took her to Colombia throughout her childhood and that she now went back home to Colombia frequently on her own. These two stories involve two young women of roughly the same age, adopted as infants by U.S. families at approximately the same time. And their infancy is important here, although I don't really go into that. Um, they speak to two ends of the spectrum of the available approaches to race in transracial adoption practice. And they both, I'm arguing, involve processes of re-racialization. The differences between them correspond to two different approaches to transracial adoption in the, use, in the recent U.S. history of adoption, namely assimilation in the first story and immersion in the second. In both models, the child is endowed with raciality according to a notion of race as a natural substance that is passed from the birth mother and father to the child. Um, uh, in the first story, uh, in the assimilation model, the substance is seen as largely incidental. It does not carry significance beyond its facticity. Consequently, it becomes possible for the adoptee to apparently simply blend into white culture to be assimilated into whiteness. It is not that the adoptee is not seen as being of a different race, at least initially, but rather that the assimilation model uh, does not allow any substantial discourse of race in the process of adoption and parenting. The unmarked category of whiteness, therefore, has free reign to do its work. Like my student adopted from Korea, the adoptee is raised in a white family, more often than not in a predominantly white neighborhood, and becomes white through the everyday technologies of childhood that are also technologies of race, in this case, or in this case specifically of whiteness. The books, toys, games, media, school curriculum, and everyday interactions in which the entire conceptual field and visual field assumes whiteness without ever having to name it as such. It's hardly surprising, given this process, that my student sees herself, and legitimately so, as white and insists upon this, while also knowing that she is likely to be challenged in this claim. In fact, perhaps the only way in which my student is different from her neighborhood peers is that she actually identifies explicitly as white. She does not have the luxury of simply being white in the same way. 
She must claim and, in that sense, negotiate her whiteness and race in general. In other words, she identifies as white, but she does not enjoy all the privileges of whiteness. She must invoke her whiteness. Uh, it's worth noting as well that this might be a far more difficult process for a black child, say, than for my student in story number one, given the hierarchies of race and racism at work in the US. However, the phenomenon of black and other non-white children claiming that they are white or expressing the desire to be white is, um, or at least at one time was, not entirely unusual. I think here of Whoopi Goldberg's famous sketch where she plays a nine-year-old black girl who bathes in Clorox and covers her head with a white skirt, wishing to become white with long, beautiful, flowing hair. <laughs> Technologies of whiteness are powerful in transnational, transnational adoption in particular, though, because first, the person in question is a child who has relatively little power over the conditions of its existence, and secondly, because that child is often the only one seen as originally racially other in relation to the family and often the larger social world it inhabits. While transracially adopted children are still brought up in what has been identified as the assimilation model, which I've just described, it corresponds really to an earlier period in adoption history from the 1950s to the 1970s that saw the first wave of Korean to US adoptions and then Vietnamese. The second story, in contrast, corresponds to the currently favored immersion model in which technologies of cultural competence work to bind adoptees to their cultural heritage. In this model, the child also begins with a naturally produced race passed onto it through the processes of normal reproduction, in quotes. However, now the race that the child carries as a natural fact is tied to a racial cultural heritage that is seen to carry with it a kind of force of its own, one that requires action on its behalf at the same time. So I use the term racial cultural here because the child's race becomes the mark of a different culture that already belongs to the child and with which it must be imbued, again, at the same time. While all adoptees might be seen to carry a different culture with them by virtue of their birth elsewhere, both domestically and internationally, then within the adopting family, in practice, it is primarily the non-white transracial adoptees in both domestic and transnational adoption for whom these issues of race and therefore also culture become concerns in adoption discourse. Culture only becomes significant, in other words, because of racial difference, one stands in for the other. Uh, Lisa Falvey has suggested that in the case of the Chinese adoptees and their families she studied, the immersion approach involves exposing girls because gender also plays a role in the availability of, child availability of children from China and elsewhere, as we've seen. To, uh, so that involves exposing girls to actually Orientalist versions of Chinese culture, including dance and music. She argues that the immersion model, in quotes, uh, unintentionally stresses the need to accentuate difference as a way to perform it for white culture, and therefore also, quote, reinscribes and reinforces hegemonic anxiety over the racial and cultural other. The technologies of race employed in this case are much more explicitly defined than in the immersion model, and not surprisingly, they too re-racialize the adoptee in terms of the very racial or racial cultural origin that the assimilation model renders insignificant. The twist on racialization here is that the race is simultaneously transformed into culture. It is culturalized, but it still bears the mark of race as a feature of the material body, of the surface features of skin color, hair texture, and so on. So the foreign adoptee is both is originally race and cultured and becomes so through the uh, particular 
uh, process of childhood enculturation, trips to the birth country, dolls with appropriate skin and hair color available on adoption websites, culturally matched music and learning of language and dance and holiday rituals. The second story I told earlier clearly bears the mark of the shift to immersion, but it also arguably tells a rather different story of the way children are re-racialized and acculturated according to this model, or a way. Rather than being exposed to Euro-US-centric versions of her own culture, as in the cases Falvey describes, this young woman has developed a relationship with her birth country to the extent that she now sees it as her own, her home. Her bond with Colombia is equally premised on a material racial-cultural origin in Colombia, and her racial-cultural selfhood has been generated through repeated engagement with Colombia in actual time and space. Her own racialization and enculturation have taken place in relation to this engagement, such that she is seen as being Colombian by her parents, who therefore also make her Colombian or sustain her Colombianness through repeated exposure. She too has been re-racialized, but in a particular and different way from either the Korean young woman in the first story or the Chinese girls in Falvey's account. The self-consciousness of the relevant technologies and practices in the immersion model is partly a result of the gap between seemingly automatic or neutral forms of racialization that take place in non-adoptive families and the unnaturalness of the transracially adoptive families. This is strikingly evident in the discussion about hair among transracially adoptive parents of black children to which entire blogs are devoted. Considering the following entry. If you adopt an African-American child or a biracial child, one of the hottest topics is hair care. It's not just a matter of child care. Hair is also a matter of great pride in the African-American community. If you take your blonde-haired daughter out in public with a head full of messy hair, chances are no one will say anything to you. But if you take your African-American, it's abbreviated AA, daughter out in public without her hair done, your chances of hearing comments are good, and the chances are especially good if you are a Caucasian mother. So what's newly, a newly adoptive mom to do? If you grew up in a traditional Caucasian family, the chances of you knowing anything at all about cornrows, hot combs, relaxes, or twists are slim to none. The differences in washing, brushing, and care in general are big, and there is an outrageous number of products out there for African-American hair. Luckily, there are lots of great resources out there, and with a little practice, even this Irish lass can cornrow and twist with the best of them. So what's especially interesting to me about this blog entry is the adoptive mother's willingness to articulate her whiteness and to learn to employ what is for her a new technology of race in some sense, or at least of hair, cornrowing and twisting, right? In employing this new skill, interestingly, however, she does not see herself as being transformed racially. She is only learning a new skill and new cultural rules. She remains white while her child becomes, in a sense, more properly African-American. The conscious articulation and production of race in transnational adoption can also include a, an explicit reference not just to culture but to racism. In the context of U.S. racism, racial cultural identity becomes a necessary antidote to the harm that racism will necessarily affect on non-white children adopted into white families. As Anne Elizabeth Vong puts it in an article in the journal Social Work titled Cultural Competence for Transracial Adoptive Parents, both supporters and critics of the practice of transracial adoption strongly recommend that transracially adoptive parents need to acquire the attitude, skills, and knowledge that enable them to help their children develop positive racial attitudes and survival skills for life in a racist society. The turn to cultural competence is offered here as one way to ensure that children develop such skills. 
but how effective is this approach? In her work on Chinese adoptees and their families, Lisa Falvey identifies the problematic assumptions behind the immersion model, writing that, although idealistic in nature, to approach integration, which is her alternative model, um, parents must first be willing to understand that culture is not transmitted through commodification. Second, parents must realize that no matter how many Chinese culture classes to which their children are exposed, these classes cannot replace real exposure to a culture, Chinese or otherwise. At best, this cultural education cannot make up for actual cultural transmission. Falvey establishes a difference here between authentic and inauthentic cultural transmission that has its own problems, arguably, but I want to focus on her proposed solution, the integration model, which she argues, quote, would offer adoptees optimal choices to either embrace or reject identities, either American or their countries of birth, at will. In addition to resolving the problem of uh, imposing an essentialized orientalist culture on adoptees who, in Falvey's account, often actively resist this imposition in favor of claiming an authentic American identity. The integration model is more explicitly resistant to racism, she, racism, she argues, than is the immersion model. Quote, integration asks that adoptive parents begin to challenge sites of difference, to agitate effectively for change, to stand up to orientalism in all of its forms. Even the most simple act of refusing to answer the where is she from, no really, where is she from, question, with anything but the child's uh, American hometown is an act of defiance that shifts the dialogue away from obsessing on the other. In the end, and most importantly, national origin and ethnicity should not be held as determinants of Americanness. White families should be motivated to consider how much of their desire to instill Chinese culture is, a reaction, is reactionary and how much is based in pride. End of quote. It's clear that Falby's identification of the problems of transracial adoption is particular to the case of Chinese adoptions, and rightly so. Her articulation of the problem of race as it dovetails with culture also identifies more generally the burden of performing racial cultural otherness for a white audience that has placed transracially adopted children, which denies them the privilege of full belonging and unproblematized national identity offered to their white counterparts, including, again, domestic and international adoptees. While Falvey's approach certainly seems like an improvement, it's not clear what would count as real exposure to a culture, as I suggested, and how such exposure might help to mitigate against transracially adopted children's experience of racism. This, in turn, prompts me to ask, what is the problem of race in transnational adoption? In the end, it seems to me that the problem of race in transnational adoption is precisely the problem of racism. Non-white children must face and negotiate this problem whether they are adopted or not, and white families who adopt children of color, so to speak, like all white people, can either take on this problem or ignore it. How they take on the problem is, of course, significant, as I hope my discussion shows. The options are neither limitless nor preordained by some biological truth of race. White adoptive adults, families, and communities may employ existing technologies of re-racialization, or they may adopt new ones that undermine white privilege and afford children more open and positive ways of inhabiting the world. And I've used the term adopt in the prior sentence deliberately to emphasize the potential that is generated by the process of adoption as compared to biological reproduction as a way of making families. On one hand, transracial adoption by white families potentially condenses racism for the adoptee in particular ways by situating the child as a child as a child and the only other in the heart of whiteness, the domestic space of the nuclear family. 
On the other hand, transracial adoption at least potentially offers the possibility of different kinds of re-racialization that open up that very nuclear family to different kinds of affiliation. One example of this is the case of Chinese adoptees who return with their families to spend time playing with children at the orphanages where they were once housed. The forging of these children's relationships to China explicitly and frankly makes visible the very particular and material conditions of their existence before and after adoption. They were children relinquished for adoption under, one, under the one-child policy in China and so on, um, who are now relatively privileged U.S. children in white families. They and their families create a relationship with the child's conditions of birth, not through a reified notion of Chinese culture, but through engagement with their counterparts in the Chinese orphanage in real time and space. In the scheme of things where the inequalities on many levels that enable and produce transracial and transnational adoption are at work, this approach seems at least a good enough option. In fact, we can see transracial adoption as potentially re-racializing not only the adoptee but also the white family. In this case, the shift is from hegemonic whiteness to an other kind of whiteness, one that is potentially resistant to the hegemonic form, one that is no longer assumed as the given against which the transracial adoptees must be colored in, so to speak. Instead, this whiteness is self-consciously white and resistant to the hegemonic model. Transracial adoption in no way guarantees nor requires such transformation, nor is it the only place where such transformation can happen, obviously. But white adoptive parents and families may arguably re-racialize themselves in a resistant mode before, during, and or after the adoption process begins in ways that can only benefit their newly adoptive child and the worlds they all inhabit. So in, in order to make fully conscious reproductive decisions or to make reproductive technology available that optimizes the reproductive freedom, the reproductive freedom of, uh, for all men and women, we need to transcend the either-or perspective and integrate the individual's needs and motivations into the broader sociopolitical and historical framework that includes an analysis of class, race, ethnicity, and history. That's just a... I'm reiterating from before. This framework allows us to take agency, uh, resistance, and other variables into account while exploring and challenging ideologies, um, some of the ideologies that uh, the presenters have already listed. For example, the ideology of choice, the age-old eugenic ideology of who's fit to reproduce. Um, as... Um, as Laura Briggs said, how families become uh, differentially valued. The, um, the, the, patri the patriarchal and nationalist ideology that women's primary value in society is, uh, is only achieved by having children. The privileging of the biological over the social. The um, demonization of women of color as... Um, as Don Ayn has so eloquently uh, outlined for us. Uh, and, and I saw that, uh, and it's both Don Ayn and, of course, Laura Briggs, whose excellent book, Reproducing Empire, really is, is a dynamite um, discussion of, of all of these discourses uh, in, in the Spanish-speaking Caribbean, in particular, Puerto Rico. And, and, uh, and also, um, as Claudia has mentioned, and I'm sure you will also want to discuss, the oppressive ideology of motherhood um, and 
that that basically keeps emphasizing that once again having children or being a mother is the highest goal that women can achieve. So I think there, there are many other uh, ideologies and ideas that have been presented here. I'll leave that to you to raise questions about, um, but I just wanted to, to list those. So thank you, and we'll open it up to questions now.